Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Sacasa, and I just pray that you're having an amazing day today. Okay, well, today was a heavy episode. We talk about mental health issues and suicidality and suicidation in the church. And joining me on the show to have this delightful, wonderful conversation, truthfully, honestly, beautiful conversation, is Deacon Ed Schoner, who is the president of Catholic Mental Health Minister Association and is a deacon of the Diocese of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Deacon Ed speaks at length about his own personal history with this and his daughter, Katie, who died by suicide in 2016 and her struggles with bipolar disorder. And from that conversation, we spin out to discuss what the church can do to better minister to individuals who struggle with mental health issues and how we can better minister to family members who have loved ones that have died by suicide. We also talk about how therapists can develop better diagnostic tools and what we need to do to be better about understanding what this issue is. I recognize that when we talk about mental health issues or things of this nature, that they're very heavy and we tend to feel very helpless. And and so how does this helplessness impact our ability or lack of ability at times to be able to minister to people? And so we end the show certainly just by talking about what parishes can do to better meet the needs of their parishioners with mental health issues. And as well as just what clergy can do to be more vulnerable about talking talking about their own struggles uh, that they may be having. So I pray that you enjoy this episode. And if you're somebody who struggles with mental health or has a family member that struggles with mental health, then I pray that this episode is a blessing to you. And when the show is done, please leave a comment or write a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Those things do help. Uh, this show only grows really by word of mouth. So if this episode has been a blessing to you or other episodes of the Always So Podcast have been a blessing, then please share those particular episodes with people that you know uh, so they can benefit also by the great work that we're doing here at Willwoods and with this particular um, ep- this particular show of Always Hope. So God bless everybody and let's get into this conversation with Deacon Ed. Deacon Ed Schoner, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Good. Good to meet you, Mario. Yeah, it's my the pleasure is all mine. So just take a second to introduce yourself and the good work of the Association of Catholic Mental Health Ministers. Um, yeah, just what do you do for the Diocese of Scranton? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm a deacon in the Diocese of Scranton. Uh, I've been a deacon or was ordained in 2004, so I've been at this uh, quite a while. Mm-hmm. I'm assigned to the cathedral parish in, in downtown Scranton, uh, home of the office, which is our yep. current claim to fame. And uh, <laughs> so I enjoy that ministry. Uh I'm also uh, president of the Association of Catholic Mental Health Ministers, and I've joined with a number of other people around the country and even around the world to offer mental health ministry within the church. Uh, We can get into it a bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. It basically started um, shortly after the death of my daughter, Katie, by uh, suicide. She had a serious mental illness called bipolar disorder. Uh, But I was actually starting to look into this ministry before she died. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's a handful of us around the country that... uh, uh, we're offering this mental health ministry, and we've since grown this into an association and, and all sorts of other things that we're trying to do to build this ministry within within the church. You know, praise praise the Lord. As a, as a therapist, a ministry like this, of course, is I see the, the, the high value of it and the need of it. Um, because so often I know, even in my time when I was in the seminary, working with sem- working with seminarians, the question would always come, like, what do we do with people who have mental health issues? And the answer is always, well, you know, refer to counseling, refer to counseling for sure. But I always felt that there was more, of course, that the church could do in and of itself. You know, certainly, obviously, as a therapist, you know, referring people to, to counseling, of course, is absolutely needed. But but what more could the church do to provide services? Um, and so I know we're gonna we're gonna get into that in a little bit, you know, as we kind of talk about this conversation here today. But really, I guess the place where I want to start is as I've read about your story, and and you know, as you've shared it, you know, publicly and in your books and in different outlets, um, I'm I'm just very impressed and grateful that you and your wife have decided to go public with this story with regards to Katie and her bipolar disorder and and her death by suicide. And I, I imagine that it's been a real blessing in some ways, I guess, for people who have heard it in the ways that 
like God can use good in all circumstances. You know, God can pull the good in all circumstances. And just by you, you being vulnerable and sharing about this, um, I imagine many people have, have benefited by, by your openness um, to be able to see, you know, a, a father's love and a deacon in the church speaking very clearly about the need for, for a Catholic response to, to these issues, a better response to these issues. So if you wouldn't mind, um, please just tell us a little bit about Katie and about her bipolar and and about you and Ruth and, and your marriage and your love for her and um, and how you guys found out about her having bipolar and just kind of the, all the circumstances that happened there. Yeah, I love talking about Katie. <laughs> and I would just say that as a general note for people that are grieving the death of a child. I mean, we always love to talk about our children. Sometimes people are reluctant or afraid to bring it up. But, you know, I never for a moment forget Katie. And uh, so so I always love to talk about her. And I always encourage people, friends, relatives, uh, to talk to the person that you know that maybe has uh, um, a child has died. Because for the most part, we always love to talk about our children. So you might have to cut me off and stop me at some point. <laughs> it's an hour podcast. We're right. So, I might, it's <laughs> so I might talk, to, talk about Katie more than, maybe more than, I, than you need me to. But Katie was a beautiful, vibrant uh, young woman. Uh, she was born on Halloween. And so uh, Halloween <laughs> was always a big day in our house. Uh, she was outgoing from the get-go. She had one of these personalities, exuberant personalities. So even in our house, you know, when she was a little kid, there'd be 30, 40 little girls and boys running around at every Halloween and it'd be a blowout. And throughout her life, she was like that. Uh, from a child through teenage years, she was uh, president of the uh, 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 the honor society in her high school. She was uh, captain of the soccer team. She uh, just had tons of friends. She was exuberant. This is the best word I can use for her. exuberant and vibrant young woman. Uh, but like so many people, uh, she had a mental illness and it came on as quite as common as you probably know, Mario, it's quite common to come on in the teen years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we as parents, didn't realize she was struggling with this mental illness called bipolar disorder. The first time we found out about it was when she was a senior in high school, you know, at the top of her game, so to speak. You know, she's very well known and popular within her high school class. And um, Ruth and I, my wife Ruth and I, went away for a weekend on a business trip. Ruth came with me and um, we got a call from the hospital. Uh, that Katie was in the hospital after having uh, a suicide attempt. And uh, that was the first we heard of it. And we didn't even realize it was a suicide attempt initially. We thought it was some other, something else that she was doing and we didn't understand what to make of it. Uh, and, but we subsequently realized that it was serious depression. She was cutting uh, and hiding it with her bracelets. We never knew she was cutting as a way to relieve the tension mm -hmm. that she was, anxiety she was dealing with. Uh, so that was our first encounter with it in her, in her late teens. Uh, she was depressed and then she went away, to, but she got stable. And then she uh, went away to college, She NYU in Manhattan, New York University. Uh, she uh, she always wanted to go to Manhattan. She loved Manhattan, uh, so she went there. But then she had a manic episode in, in New York and then got treated at Lenox Hill Hospital, a very fine hospital in New York. Uh, and uh, so she had ups and downs over the years. Uh, she always took it seriously. She took the mental illness very seriously. She took the meds very seriously. Uh, she didn't fight it. Uh, she uh, And so after her incident in New York, she came back. She got stabilized again, went to Penn State, graduated from Penn State with a business degree. And uh, she uh, was resist treating her body was treatment resistant, as I've since come to understand a little hmm. bit, uh, to the meds. So her meds would be, she'd be on a mix of meds, they'd be good for a while, and then her body would react, and the meds would no longer work. She'd either have a depression episode or a manic episode, they'd mix the meds back up again, she'd be fine. She always was in therapy uh, to deal with this. She got stable again and went to Ohio State University, uh, graduated from a fine school there, uh, uh, Fisher School, got a master's in business administration. In human resources, not finance or anything like that, she wanted to work in human resource because she, as she put it, she enjoyed helping people to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that's how she saw human resources, is helping people to build the careers that they want to build. 
build. But you know, uh, these illnesses are relentless, and uh, she uh, she had a couple of depressive episodes. And for Katie, when she went into depression, she'd be fine and it'd be like she fell off the edge of a table. It'd be so sudden, and uh, she'd be fine one day. The next day, she couldn't read a sentence on a piece of paper. She'd be so depressed and not able to focus. Um, and I'm sure that's what happened the day she died by by suicide, because um, she was. She talked to my wife every day, and she was making plans to move out to San Diego, where our, our one son Rob lives. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it was an impulsive suicide uh, on August 3rd, 2016. Uh, so we miss her dearly. She was a beautiful, wonderful young woman. She was 29 when she died. Mercy. Thank you for sharing all of that. And, and so you wrote an obituary that went viral. Um, well, what inspired, you said in your book that that you just that night when you when you got the news from the police officers and they came on the door around midnight knocked on the door you couldn't sleep that night and you just decided to start writing and what came out came out and then you started sharing that you know just through the normal means of online or in the paper or whatever it is and all of a sudden this obituary is getting picked up by various media outlets different different sources and people are just commenting you know by the droves you know on Facebook and on um, I think legacy.com was the website I think you mentioned. And and so when you started seeing that, w- what was your experience um, seeing that type of response to something that you just kind of wrote, you know, on whim in the middle of the night? Right. Yeah. It was only a couple hours after Katie died. I'm sitting, you know, at this in this room that we're talking from. And uh, my wife, Ruth, wondered, what, what are you doing at the computer? And, uh, you know, full on dad instincts kicked in and I started doing everything I could to take care of my little girl after she she died. So talked to the funeral director, all those things that you don't ever want to have to do, but you want to do them well when it comes time to do them. And one of the things I thought I would do was write this obituary. And so I'll swear until the day I die, and then I'll get to meet Jesus and find out exactly what was going on. But I'll swear to the day I die that the Holy Spirit was in the well, I'm sure the Spirit was with me, but in guiding me in some way in this, uh, that uh, to turn, you know, God can turn everything to the good, even suicide. Um, so uh, this short obituary was mainly written, mainly just to uh, tell our parishioners here in Scranton and our neighbors what happened. And so there wouldn't be any gossiping or, you know, murmuring what happened, about what happens. Just be open about it. And so I wrote that Katie had a mental illness uh, and she died by suicide, but she was not defined either by her mental illness or her manner of death, that she was a beautiful creation of God. And asked people when they talked about this to uh, not call, use the phrase that she is bipolar or he is schizophrenic, but that she, Katie had bipolar disorder. She wasn't defined by the illness. Just like we don't say someone is cancer or someone is heart disease, we say they have heart disease or they have cancer. Uh, and to use what's called first person language. Uh, and, uh, and to remember that she was, uh, she was loved by God. And it was a very simple obituary. Uh, and it apparently spoke to the, to the needs and, and fears and dilemmas that people with mental illness and those who have loved ones who have died by suicide confront all the time. And that's, I'm sure, why it went viral. Uh, yeah, it's not because either Katie or I are any kind of celebrity or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was it just it was a very succinct, heartfelt obituary to say Katie was beautiful and she had an illness and she died. And but to remember as a beautiful young woman. And uh, so I, I'm, you know, obviously I would take it all back to have Katie back. But sure. but if uh, if any good can come out of this, it's, that's it's wonderful. And it does seem as though the, the Lord has used this and to, to, to bring some good out of it, to bring some comfort and compassion to the lives of people that deal with mental illness. So, I mean, it's been five years now. You said 2016. Um, we're in 2021 now when we're recording this, December 2021. When you think of the last five years and your experience, not only, I guess, with Katie's death by suicide, but then also the years before with her mental illness and now just kind of having some time to reflect and the ministry that you guys have started serving people with mental illness and, and making this a real focal point now kind of moving forward. What has this experience taught you about mercy, about God's grace, about providence, um, about how all of this kind of unfolds, you know, because I know people tend to have a lot of questions and in, 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 there aren't answers. I know there aren't easy answers. It's not like we know why God allows these things to happen. No one has an answer for that one. And I'm not 
putting you on the spot to answer that because no one. Well, I no can't. Because <laughs> no one, no one knows. No one knows. But just in your own journey of of healing and grief and work that you've done, I'm sure. What has helped you make sense of this? Um, what has allowed you to 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 be able to process this in a way um, that that allows you to kind of continue to move forward in life? The God's in the midst of this. The God's with us in this suffering and in this grief, and the God's somehow can turn it to the good. So, for those of us that grieve, and I and I also do a lot of grief support group work. Is, is to try to bring our, the things that our loved ones loved into the world, bring their joys into the world, but also take what they suffered from and turn that into service to people who suffer from the same sort of problems. And in my case, it's it's mental illness, uh, of helping people that live with a mental illness because that's what Katie had. And I think that's what God is trying to do through this ministry and the ministries that so many other people offer is is that you know death is not the final word suffering's not the final word we know that through the through the passion of Christ and through his death and then resurrection and that all of this will be redeemed uh, in the final in the end and we're living in the kingdom of God now and we're part of this mystery of overcoming suffering and overcoming death we're not just waiting for it to happen some sometime right, in right. the future. It's happening now. And we can we participate in that by by doing these things that we do through these ministries, whether it's grief support or prison ministry, in my case, mental health ministry. We take all of these things that people suffer from. We we Christ will work through us as broken and crooked as we are, will work through us to bring his love and compassion into the lives of the people that live with this. So that's how I kind of get at the answer to that question that uh, I don't have the ultimate answer you know we'll, we'll all know it at some point in the on the day of the final judgment but at this point I do know enough to know from just from scripture and now my own direct personal experience that Christ wants to be in the middle of all of this and to accompany us through this suffering and to reassure us that death even death by suicide as horrible as that can be, is not the end. Um, death by crucifixion wasn't the end either. And uh, so that's how I process this, I guess, if you will, to use a, mo a more modern psychological term. Uh, well, you're is, talking to is, a therapist, so process yeah, is good. Go. So that's how I process this and understand this. And I've seen it repeated over and over over the last five years or so uh, since Katie's death, that, that, that I've been confirmed in that, that the Christ is in the middle of that. And there's something in the culture now where the doors are starting to crack open, where the spirit can breathe in this uh, area of mental health and mental illness and, and suicide, where people, some people, many people, I think, are willing to start to listen to this, hear this, and want to act on it, which is maybe couldn't have happened 25, 30 years ago. Uh, but I think things are starting to open up a little bit, and we need to uh, let the Holy Spirit rush in and blow the doors open as wide as possible. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. You know, in, in the face of a great tragedy, sometimes we, we can run too quick into into trying to um, making sense mode. Um, and, you know, we can come up, unfortunately, with little cliches like stuff that I really don't like at all. When people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Like, I hate that phrase. <laughs> it's, it's, like my, <laughs> it's like my least favorite yeah. phrase that people throw right. out all the time, you know. Right. Or, uh, or you, you make your plans, God laughs, you know, type of thing, you know, which I know sometimes you can be used in jest when we're trying to be overly whatever. But, but sometimes these cliches uh, aren't helpful in these moments, you know, to just the best we can do is just accompany people and enter into their pain. And Benedict XVI said in Space Salvi something to this effect that, you know, the word, he, he, he kind of reflects on the word compassion. Um, which is the passion is suffering and come is, is with C-O-M. So to, to be with somebody in their suffering is how we offer compassion, you know, is how we genuinely enter into into, into somebody else's suffering. And, and who better to do that than Christ himself, of course, because he's the one who suffered the, the, the greatest for all of us. And so it, it's, it's the sense that we may not understand why these things happen, but we do have a process to help us to walk through this when it does happen. And the first step is, as you said so beautifully, you know, like allowing 
God's grace to be able to, to, to speak to us and to minister to us and to lean on our communities. I think one of the things that I really appreciated about your story is that you said you still got up the next day, you went to Mass at 8 a.m., you had spiritual direction the next day. And, and, and for me, it was like, man, this is the church at its best, like when it's, when it's meeting people in the midst of their suffering and offering them the rituals that, that are there, the Mass, the Eucharist, the grace that we receive from that, but then being able to have spiritual direction the, same, the next day. And so just recognize that 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 there is a community there is a body that is present that wants to serve us we just have to be open to that and i think sometimes people in the face of tragedy struggle opening up struggle being able to receive um, the grace that that god wants to give to them even in the midst of it and again sometimes because they're really angry with god and, and they don't they don't they you know right. they blame him for right. the tragedy that happens and 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 i get it listen i've been there i get it i understand you know so but you said beautifully towards the end of kind of your reflection there that you, you feel that there's a moment here that we're, we're, we're getting more comfortable talking about mental illness. We're getting more comfortable talking about suicide. Now, it seems like as we've talked about this that, and I appreciate you, you kind of offer some clarity on this in the book, it seems like people have talked about suicide as if it's increasing and that there is an increase that that's happening. Um, but but that's not the case, is it? I mean, it that's seems like- That's not what the data shows. That's what not is what the data, data shows. What does the data show? Because that was surprising to me, truthfully. The da- Well, the data shows that the suicide rate today in 2021 is about, in the US at least, is about the same as it was in 1921. It's about you know, 13, 14, 15 per 100,000, which is about right. what it was back in 1921. Now mm-hmm. it's gone up and down over the years. It's, you know, it's fluctuated. Sure. Uh, but what is interesting actually is it came down in the 80s and 90s uh, and no one quite knows why that came down. It came down to around 10 or so in the end per 100,000, 11 or so, and that, but That's now it's back up to historic levels again. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of uh, psychologists. There's, as you probably know, it was a surprise to me that there's a subfield, subfield of psychology called suicidology God bless them, the people that are able to study this on a daily basis. But I've talked to a couple of suicidologists and they will readily admit they don't know why. Uh, and that's one of the things that why we included this uh, in the book is, is that so many people who have lost someone to suicide are so guilt ridden and think that somehow they should have seen it coming. There's something they should have done to be able to prevent it. And even the, you know, the, the great medical minds that study this will readily admit their ability to predict which individual is going to die by suicide is terrible. Correct. This person with this mental illness, with these like of circumstances, doesn't die, and this particular person with similar circumstances does die. They they don't they're not able to predict. Fortunately, most people with mental illnesses do not die by suicide. It's still a relatively small percentage. But I think the reason it hasn't come down is because of the stigma and the discrimination and fear of talking about this. I mean, you've seen the uh, death rates for AIDS, come plummeting, heart disease, cancer, and all of that's good because we've overcome the stigma and discrimination and have been able to put the research and effort into getting these uh, mortality rates down. Not so with suicide. And so we need to get past all of this and declare a war on suicide, just as we have in these other illnesses, and get these... uh, death rates down. Uh, there's just, we need more research. We need better medical care. Uh, I can get into, we can get into, you know, the the, the uh, inadequacy of mental health care. It's better than nothing. And I would always say, follow your doctor's advice regardless, uh, but it needs to get better. It needs to be better. Uh, but uh, yeah, the suicide rates have pretty much stayed the same in this country for the last hundred years or so. When I was getting my master's degree, my, my first supervisor, and when I was doing kind of my first clinical rotation or internship, I guess, and I had a client who, who, who attempted suicide, and uh, she had um, swallowed a bottle of pills, and her husband found her, and so she was able to, to they got her to the hospital, got her stomach pumped, and, and, and she, was, she, was, she was saved. She was okay. Right. But I remember just that was my first interaction with this at a, at a, at a you know, heart level, and and immediately, even me as the therapist was like, man, like, what did I, what did I miss? What signs did I miss? I mean, like, I knew there was some depression, I knew there was some domestic violence, but, but still, like, what did, like, what did I miss? You know, right. as, as the one who's supposed to be the one that's in charge, and, and I was sharing this with my supervisor who, had worked with um, severe mental illness, you know, for years and years and years, and his response was exactly what you said. He just said, Mario, listen. He goes, if someone's gonna, you know, attempt to end their life by suicide. They're going to do it. Like they're not going to call you to to check whether or right. not they want to whether or not they should do it. Um, it's just it's going to happen. And it's there's a very little rational. 
act. I mean, Katie and I talked about it. Katie thought about it, checked herself into psychiatric hospitals a couple of times when the suicidality got severe. I mean, she caught herself making a noose once and she said, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Making a noose. And she got into the hospital. Similarly, once she went to buy a gun. And fortunately, the, the clerk at the desk gave her some baloney about how she had to take a test and all, all this stuff because he sensed something was up. But it gave her just enough time to collect herself and get her checked into a psychiatric hospital. But yeah, sometimes these suicides are so impulsive, they're irrational acts. I talked to Katie about it. She did not want to die by suicide. It scared the daylights out of her, how this would take over her mind. Uh, and, you know, it, she would feel, feel as though she had to do it. Uh, then when she was stabilized, she realized it was an irrational act. And I've talked to, like you have, I'm sure, Mario, uh, talked to people that have attempted suicide. And once they're stable, they say, oh, thank God I didn't die. But mm-hmm. I was in this state, in this zone where it seemed like it was not, it wasn't a Hamlet to be or not to be type of discussion. It was like the only choice. This is, so it's so hard to predict. I'll tell you, after Katie died, uh, we called her therapist, who she was seeing every week, sometimes twice a week. And in many ways, he was probably closer to her than, than we were to her because she, you know, in therapy would spill her guts out to him. We had to console him uh, uh-huh. as parents. He was so broken because, uh, you know, as you can imagine, the therapist, you know, what did I do wrong? How did I miss this? How did I not see this coming? He was mm-hmm. seeing her very regularly. She had a suicide prevention plan, all that stuff that yeah, we, you do. Uh, so we do that you stuff. Know, even, Unfortunately, that stuff, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, it's not it, the ultimate it's not the it ultimate. Helps. I'm not it saying helps. don't it do helps. it. I'm, no, no, no. You do it because it helps. And, and sometimes, right. unfortunately, they, they train us therapists sometimes to do it just more to CYA, you know. Which, and, right. It, but which, I think perhaps, but, in, you know, in those know. couple instances I talked about where she was making a noose or going to buy a gun, maybe she that suicide plan. prevention plan kicked in and, and helped. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, it didn't prevent, in the end, didn't prevent her suicide. And I don't know what the therapist could have done. Uh, you know, short of... You know, get better medical care and more tools in the toolbox of therapists and psychiatrists. I mean, we, you guys, professionals, need more options and better options. Uh, you know, diagnostic tools. They just, you know, you can't take a blood test and say, oh, their their serotonin levels are dropping. They're gonna they're on the way to suicide. Like my do- my son or one of our sons has uh, uh, diabetes. So he monitors his blood levels all the time. He knows when his sugar levels are safe and not safe and respond accordingly. There's nothing like that for mental health care where you can monitor the physical or the biological, whatever is going on there. You can't just you just can't monitor it that closely. Uh, And hopefully I know there's a lot of research going on in the labs and hopefully maybe someday we'll get to the point where these diagnostic tools are better and a little more precise than they are now. But, you know, they aren't there yet. That's fascinating. I mean, so are you, is that one that you're hearing in terms of like people taking like regular blood tests to like check I'm their serotonin hearing about levels? In research labs, yeah. they can see when the serotonin and dopamine levels go off, change, and they can see, they can line that up with levels of depression. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the research, mm-hmm. but it's not at a clinical level yet where you can mm-hmm. take it into your office and use it. But there's a lot of research going on around those parameters of trying to come up with better diagnostic tools and better ways to predict behavior and then intervene and do something uh, with with a certain level of precision. Uh, as you probably know, with the medicines, you know, the medicines right now are hit or miss. Yeah. You know, and Katie, we saw Katie went through that many times. You, you know, you take a medicine and then you have to wait. It's not like taking aspirin where the headache goes away in a couple hours. You take the medicine, you wait a couple of days or weeks, you go back it's to see the psychologist. How are you feeling? Yeah. Do you still want to kill yourself? You know, those are the questions that are asked. And so it's a very slow you know, ambiguous process. I mean, I always tell people though, take your meds, you know, they're better than nothing. With Katie, she definitely stayed alive longer than she would have if she did not have the meds and the therapy. Uh, it's kind of like chemotherapy is, you know, not all, not all uh, chemotherapy cures cancer. I mean, still people die from cancer even in chemotherapy. I'd say it's the same way with these, um, uh, psychiatric medicines and therapy. For a lot of people, it, it, it's great and it does solve the problem. They live long, healthy lives. But for some, like Katie, you know, it, it doesn't work out that way. But still, uh, we had her for many more years than we would have had her if she didn't have these this medical care. And mm-hmm. the other thing I'm quick to add to Catholic audiences sure. in particular is, is that 
Her mental illness and her death by suicide is not a moral failure or a character flaw. It's so rooted what... in these illnesses. And uh, she, I'm looking here, I hit, save them here in my office. She had pictures of St. Therese on her wall. She did. She was doing an Ovena to St. Therese the, the week she died. Uh, uh, so she was always close to her faith and close to the saints. Uh, but she had this illness and these illnesses can kill you. And uh, that's just the sad reality of it. Uh, and uh, it's it's not because she didn't love God or didn't have faith. Uh, it's because she had a mental illness. And uh, it's, it's I, I wish there was a deliverance prayer, prayer or something like that that could make these mental illnesses go away, but there's not. Uh, and uh, so the best, what we can do instead for the time being is, uh, is be with people, accompany them, love them, uh, as best we can and try not to judge them in, in a moral way because they have a mental illness not even try don't do it if they have a mental illness that has nothing to do with their morale mor morality or or anything like that or their faith it's an illness and uh, support people instead Amen. we don't judge someone <laughs> because they have cancer we don't say well you got cancer you know you know back in the day you know <laughs> i always refer to the stories about christ with the lepers Back in the day, you know, through scripture, people with leprosy were judged right. as having had, the, you know, poor family background or poor upbringing. They had the leprosy because they did something wrong. Christ saw right through that and embraced the lepers and invited them and, and healed them both physically and spiritually. It's the same thing with mental illness. It, it is the same thing. Christ sees right through the illness to the person and loves them. Yeah, the, the analogy I always use is the diabetes one with my clients when we're at a point where we're trying to decide whether or not to get on some medicine or not. And yeah. and it's because, like you said, it's not, especially juvenile diabetes, it's not a moral failing. It's not your fault that you were, your pancreas right. can't, you know, digest yeah. sugar properly or process sugar properly. And so you have to go on insulin, you have to take regular, you know, checks and all that stuff. And you have to have certain lifestyle changes, you know, to, to make sure that you're not you know, going into shock or these type of things and taking care of yourself. And so it's the same thing. If there is an imbalance that's happening or things aren't firing the way that they're, they normally should, um, the brain is an organ. It's a, and it's a very powerful organ and it's a very powerful system. And yeah, certainly the medicines aren't as, aren't as precise as we would like them to be. Um, they tend to be a little bit more global in terms of affecting the whole system. Um, but but it, it's a first start, and, and it is, and it's a, and it's an opportunity to hopefully be able to raise the floor a little bit, um, particularly with people who have depression or anxiety. The SSRIs, my understanding is, more, it's more that it raises the floor, you know, which gives you the energy to be able to 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 go to therapy, to deal with the emotions, to deal with the the, the right. stuff that's happening. Now, of course, there are certain situations, like in Katie's circumstance, she spoke about being treatment resistant, that even the best of medicines or cocktails that we have just wasn't enough to, to get her thinking, you know, to, to line up right. And, um, and, and that's certainly unfortunate. All right, everybody, I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Deacon Ed just to give a plug again for Dating Well. It's coming. Basically, it's this. If you have any questions about your current relationship and wondering if things are progressing the way that they should, do you need something to confirm the butterflies and the feelings that you have that are positive or do you need something to confirm maybe some apprehension that you have and you're not quite sure? That's what Dating Well is going to help you with. It's to help you to not feel like you're alone or fumbling in the dark, just trying to figure out whether or not you're doing the right thing in a relationship. I'm drawing on my 15 plus years of marriage counseling experience and all the stories that I've heard from the many, many clients who have opened up their lives to me to be able to share with you what it is that I've learned about the dating process and what makes it work and what makes it successful and what doesn't. So Dating Well, it's coming out soon. You're going to love it. Stay tuned. Once we get all the information, we'll, we'll get it out on the podcast as well. But please check us out at faithinmarriage.org for more information about Dating Well. The piece that you keep reiterating and, and what, what I deeply appreciate about your perspective on this and I highlighted a couple times in the book was that you, you repeatedly said that it's it's not a rational act. Suicide is not a rational act. It's not the same thing as euthanasia. Like it's su death by suicide is, is is not a rational act. It's not it's not something that somebody genuinely chooses. And it is it is it is usually at the tail end of years of suffering with uh, a mental illness that in an impulse or in whenever the illness takes over the thinking of the brain that this behavior uh, follows it. 
And um, but at the end of the day, it's not a it's not a it's not a rational act. And I think that that perspective is certainly important for all of us. You know, because you talk about this in the book where some of the uh, the authors do. You know, that the church is teaching. Well, we can say certainly maybe hasn't changed, but but it's it's matured in terms of our pastoral approach to this. And I think you said this that up until what 1983, the the, the most recent canon, somebody who died by suicide wasn't allowed to have a Catholic burial. Is is that correct? I mean, even up it's, even up till then. Yes, and I still encounter people that are still traumatized by yes. the, way the way the Catholic Church used to handle suicides. At best, you could say it was a gross form of suicide prevention. But yes, uh, historically, for the last few centuries, the last couple thousand years or so, uh, until the until the catechism was changed uh, under Pope John Paul II, for St. Pope John Paul II, suicide was, uh, someone who died by suicide could not have a funeral in the Catholic Church. Uh, they were not allowed to be buried in a Catholic cemetery. They were, they were outside the the fence line, uh, and it was viewed as a rational act mm-hmm. that they deliberately took their lives for as a, as a deliberate choice. They, and they, so, the church didn't have the insight or understanding that modern psychology now provides into why people die by suicide. So, as you said, the church's basic teaching hasn't changed. You shouldn't kill yourself. I mean, that's right. grave matter. Right. You, shouldn't, you shouldn't kill yourself or anyone else for that matter. And that right. teaching has not changed. But the church now understands, being informed by insights from psychology, that suicide is almost never a rational act. And uh, it's either done through grave psychological disturbance. Therefore, it can't be, let me just nail this home, therefore it can't be uh, a, a mortal sin. Yeah, the culpability, the culpability your, informed, your, your understanding of what you're doing is so distor- distorted and disordered uh, that, yes, we would say that it does not appear to be a mortal sin. Uh, and uh, and so the church continues, it mitigates it, it reduces it the mitigates culpability. It, yeah. it. Which is the and, same thing with the church says with regards to addictions, that if somebody is in yes, the throes of addiction, exactly. whether it's yes. a sex addiction or a drug abuse or any of that stuff, like when you're in the throes of it, the church now understands exactly, we've been talking about that, the brain is mitigated, like your 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 higher functioning parts of the brain that, that help executive control of those impulses is is so depleted because of the addiction that it's difficult to, to get out of that behavior. Um, and so, the again, the culpability of the sin, is it, is it still what the church says to do? No, of course, it's still not the right thing to do to engage in, in these behaviors or these or taking use of these these medicines, I mean, these, these, these drugs, but at the same time, recognizing that when we talk about culpability, which is what we're speaking about when we say sin, it is it is mitigated to some degree um, because right. of that. Right. So, and so when Katie that. died, you know, the other paragraph on the catechism, there's three, actually three paragraphs in the catechism about suicide. The third paragraph is, is that uh, the church prays for those that have died by suicide. So when Katie died, we had a beautiful funeral. Our bishop attended the funeral, many members of the clergy, and Katie, you know, is thankfully is buried in the cathedral cemetery here in Scranton. So the uh, the church's teaching has changed. And Christ, you know, is the greatest psychiatrist and greatest psychologist, better than any human being will ever be. So he certainly understands uh, what uh, led get, leads people to the point of death by suicide. And we have to trust, and uh, our faith tells us, the, the, the unbounded depths of Christ's mercy. So my 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 hope is is that on the day that Katie died, Christ she fell into the loving arms of Christ and uh, His mercy, and uh, uh, that brings me tremendous consolation, knowing that Christ is is, is merciful, far merciful, and loved Katie more than even I, as a par- as her father, loved her and understand and understands this more than and I. I still get a little choked up five years later talking about it, uh, but it's uh, it's it's so consoling. Uh, to know that you know and the other thing if any of your listeners are listening uh who had maybe a parent die by suicide back in you know the 70s or 80s because i still run into people like this in this situation they've never been able to talk about their parents death by suicide it might be 40 50 years and i run into people in their 60s and 70s who can't talk about they were so traumatized by the church's handling of it and they they should go see their priest or deacon or pastoral counselor and not be afraid to talk about and get some reassurance about what the church teaches now Uh, because it's it's 
it's terrible to have to suppress it and live, live with a, a sense of shame because uh, your your parent or your loved one died by suicide so many years ago. It's, it's okay. Go in and talk to your pastor about it. Get a deeper understanding of what the church's teaching is now and be assured that uh, Christ understands and is with your loved one. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Deacon Ed, for, for sharing all that. And just, again, just being vulnerable and, and honest and the pain that obviously you still experience in, in the stories that you've heard. Mm. Because because it is it's real i mean and i think that i'm grateful that the church has in the in her pastoral response to this has has evolved you know because to think that you know the the church has never had this kind of reverse canonization process like it's not like we have a process of being able to canonize people to know who's in heaven but there's no process of knowing who's in hell and so there's no there's no definitive marker that we can look at and say yeah 100 percent that's where that person is there's no judge we don't we don't know we don't know and so the church has never said anyone's in hell not even judas um certainly implied certainly suggested certainly we think possibly but you know one of the things that uh i find consoling is that pope francis talks about this occasionally and one of the things, the pictures he's uh, he's talked about having on his desk or in his office is this picture of the a sculpture on the top of a column in, uh, uh, from a church in France. And on the one side of the column is a picture of Judas hanging himself. And then the other side of the column is a picture of Christ carrying Judas on his back. Hmm. And I think that's just, and what Pope Francis says is to him, that's an image of the unbounded mercy of Christ, that even Judas who traitor and died by suicide, Christ still carries him uh, in some way in the mystery of Christ. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we take great consolation in this. Is there a hell? Sure, there's a hell. I mean, mm -hmm. Scripture is very clear about that. Does yeah. God want anyone to go to hell? No. He did not make any of us to go to hell. It's it's our choice to go to hell is what the teaching of the church is. And so I'm convinced that most people who die by suicide did not when, like I said earlier, when they're, they're in the right frame of mind, they don't want to die by suicide. It's not something they wanted to do. Um, and I, Christ understands that, that it was so influenced by their illness or psychological pain that it was not a rational act. Uh, you ever seen the movie Calgary? Um, it's with Brendan Gleeson. He's a, he's a, he's a priest in, in, in Ireland. Um, okay. You ever seen this movie? It's, I can't it's, say I've seen it's, that one. It's I'll kind of a. It's kind of put it on my list. It's good. It's a little bit of a dark movie, but uh, but it's good. It, so it kind of shows him and his kind of pastoral responses to to different parishioners, and uh, and each parishioner kind of embodies one of the seven capital vices, which is kind of beautiful. Okay. And, and uh, but it, it gets caught up in the scandal and, and all these things, anyways. Um, but there's a couple lines from the movie that he's ministering to somebody who who has a family member that 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 dies by suicide and uh and his line and this is line has always stuck with me he said the 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 bounds of god's mercy have not been set you know the limits of god's mercy have not been set Amen. that's his that's his response to to this woman and so whoever wrote that kudos to you for writing that because that's a beautiful beautiful image for us to be reminded of the fact that like when it comes down to it, the limits of god's mercy have not been set we don't we don't know we don't know when we're speaking about things outside of time and space and final judgment, all those things, we have to have a profound amount of humility before it uh, because we genuinely, genuinely don't know. Um, even C.S. Lewis once joked, he said, you know, when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised by uh, by by who's there and by who's not there. Right, right. right. Kind of, I've heard of that saying, yes, yes, right, <laughs> right. You know, one of the things, too, while we're talking about this judgment and that, I, I noticed sure. you, you are—, are, are careful the way you talk about suicide, and I sense have learned too, is I don't use the phrase committed suicide. So I have to admit that I, I really, it's it, it's in your book that just reading this today or in the past couple of days, I've been like, okay, maybe I need to be cautious with my words here. And and I'm used to, and I would use the word, you know, committed suicide. And, and, and but you're very clear in the book, obviously, and, I, and you're about to go into this, I'm sorry to interrupt you, you know, that like, say death by suicide, and, and there's a reason for that. So please absolutely take the opportunity. Yeah, to and, and in fact, I did when I was, shortly after Katie died, because there were Victor went viral. I was doing quite a few interviews, and uh, a caller called in, and I was using the phrase "committed suicide" after Katie died. And a caller called in to correct me and you know and, and clarify it. And yes, yeah, so we it's, it, it implies judgment. We commit a crime, you know, that we rationally decided to steal something, or we commit a sin. That's basic teaching that you make a decision to do something contrary to uh, that uh, that you know is wrong. Uh, but 
suicide is not a rational act. So uh, we need to get away from that sense of it being a rational act. We don't say someone committed cancer. We don't say someone committed a heart attack. They died by a heart attack. They died, they died from cardiovascular disease. Similarly, they die from suicide. They die by suicide. They don't commit suicide. And that gets us to a place where it's a more fruitful discussion about why did they die by suicide you know it's you know it's not uh, it, it doesn't it forces us to understand what causes this death whereas if we use continue to use the phrase committed it sort of sounds like it's just their choice uh and some sort of rational choice and well what can you do about it when someone makes a rational choice to do something now that's not what this is and so if we can get away from that phrase that implies this sort of judgment and get it to a place where we're talking about it for what it is, an illness that's all too often the way mental illnesses and psychological stresses terminate. Um, it just leads to a better conversation and, and hopefully it gets us to the solutions and treatments that we need to get these suicide rates down. Um, to, yeah, to, uh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. You know, in, in back to this, the movie here, just there's another scene that I want to yeah. just kind of talk about. Yeah, I, sure, I, sure. I love movies. I watch movies. So so my apologies yeah. for always referring yeah. to them. He meets with this other person who's a, a serial killer, sociopath, and he meets him in, in prison because the guy wa wants to meet with the priest and he's reluctant to do so. And uh, so he's trying to talk to the guy about whether the guy's repentant of, of his of his of his actions. And the guy's like, no, I'm not, you know, but then he has this moment where he kind of breaks down and recognizes that like. Like, will God have mercy on me because he knows that he created me this way? You know, will God, you know, I, it's not because I don't want to necessarily, but, but and he's like, I'm, obviously I need to be in prison. I, I recognize that. But, you know, but in the final judgment, will God recognize that? And so, you know, that's an extreme example. But nevertheless, like, I, I think it's, it's a recognition that, again, like, God knows. You know, God knows. God knows. God knows who we are. God knows what we struggle with. God knows our temptations. God knows our failings. God knows how concupiscence manifests itself in our lives. Those are moral questions. But even at a physical level, God knows if we're born six feet tall, if we're born four foot eleven. God knows if we're born with a healthy brain or an unhealthy brain. God knows if we're born with, you know, a heart disease or, or or otherwise. And so, like, there's a recognition that, like, in the order of creation, that that it's not perfect right now. And so it, it it's not to make it sound arbitrary or random because I'm not a nihilist in any way, but that God knows the way that each and every single one of us are created. And so even with whatever limitations that we may have, and some of us may have severe limitations, whether it's physical or mental, like God understands what those things are. And I firmly believe takes all that into full account when it comes to a situation like this with suicide. Sure, absolutely. And and then further, God can use those situations in a couple of different ways. Well, one, to help us with our own redemption, because we can serve people that are struggling with these mm -hmm. things. That's a way for those of us to save ourselves, in a sense, is by uh, helping others who struggle. But also, the people that struggle with these illnesses also serve us in tremendous ways. They, Many of them have deep, deep understanding of, of humility. They have uh, a tremendous ability to empathize with people. They understand their dependence on God because so many of these things are out of their control. Just like you were just saying with this character in this movie, the serial killer, that he somehow just had to turn this over to God and say that God understands this and to bring that to our, our attention so that we can contemplate God, the goodness of God in the midst of all of this. Uh, so it's... Uh, it so, helps us as we serve others, but those that we serve also help us. Amen. Uh, so to, to, to that point, you know, I want to say, because I think sometimes what we feel when we encounter somebody who has a severe mental illness or somebody who has a severe physical illness is that we feel helpless. We feel helpless in our ability to be able to respond to this person. And then when we feel helpless as people, we almost always feel a sense of shame because no one likes to feel helpless in any circumstance. And then when we feel shame, we almost always react out of that shame. So then that's where the judgments kind of level against people or the, the criticisms or why can't you just or whatever it is. And so those judgments are unfair because the person did nothing to receive them or to merit them, I should say. But genuinely, it's more just our own helplessness that we can't deal with. And so this is something I personally have reflected on. In New Orleans, we have a, a large home. Uh, 
homeless you know population and i feel this you know when i'm driving in the road and and i see somebody who's homeless and I'm, you know immediately the judgments are coming i mean why can't this guy just get a job why can't you know what are they doing why can't they just you know get it together and get off the streets or whatever it is whatever judgment i'm leveling against them and at some point i realize it's not their it's that that's not their issue. That's my issue that I'm leveling judgment against this. And because this person's need is making me feel uncomfortable, well then God have mercy on me and my soul, you know, because I can't, I can't, I can't attend to this. So I found a simple solution for me at least. It's just I carry a package of water, water bottles in my car. And whenever I see a homeless person on the side of the road, I stop, I pull them, I give them a bottle of water. I don't feel comfortable giving money. I don't I don't can't always carry food with me, but I can carry a bottle right. of water. So I give a bottle of water and I say, Hey, how are you doing? How's your day? Um, can I pray for, or maybe not even that, just kind of, you know, how are you doing? And have a little bit of a pleasant exchange with the person. And once I realize that there's at least something small that I can do, it's not, is it going to solve the problem of homelessness? No, it's not. But it's something that I can do to at least speak to this particular person, you know, and meet them that all of a sudden those judgments go away because then you talk to them and you're like, you know, hey, what's going on? Oh, well, you know, I'm on disability, I'm, I'm a vet, you know, I have some mental illness or all these other sorts of things. I can't, you know, I can't be with my kids, I can't X, Y, and Z. And you hear your story and it's like, okay, you know, I can, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more compassionate. And so those judgments stop. And so I think that that's what I would say to anybody who, who feels that at times, a sense of helplessness, you know, that we experience. We still have to, we have to, this is a clinical, this is a counseling term, but we have to lean into that helplessness and understand what is being provoked, what, what, have, what is being provoked within us that may not be the other person's fault, but that's something that we have to do. And so then Absolutely. that's where, go ahead. I was going to say, that's a very interesting point, Mario. I'm, you know, you're, as a clinician, you're the one that it's interesting that you have that insight. Uh, and it helps me hearing you talk now to better understand what's going on and, and the importance for mental health ministry within the church and why some people are afraid of this kind of ministry uh, and are reluctant to jump into it, to be honest with you. Uh, and I, that's an interesting point, I, I, to be honest, you're bringing up. I haven't really given it a whole lot of thought, but this sense of shame, because the, 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 the our parishioners in so many parishes don't know what to do and how to respond to someone with a mental illness. So they'd rather either one and not be talked about at all. Or if they do have a mental illness and it's more evident, it's like, well, okay, you go over there and get some help, you know, get your mental illness under control and then come back into the life of the parish. Uh, uh, but, but trying to open up the parish and to accept people just the way they are without any expectation of a cure uh, and to just love them and support them um, is what we try to do in this ministry. But your insight there is, is, is a good insight as, as to why that can be difficult at times for many people, that this psychological issue of uh, dealing with your own shame uh, when you're confronted. Nobody, nobody, want, nobody wants to confront it. And this is why the poor, as you said earlier, you know, this is the gift for us, you know, is that they, they remind us of like, oh, I need to grow in charity. <laughs> like that's, right. that's, what, that's what needs to happen here. It's not you, it's me. I'm, I'm the selfish one. I gotta, I gotta grow in my capacity to be able to be creative. So like the water bottle thing for me, it's just, a, it's like, I knew I didn't feel comfortable carrying cash or giving, you know, I, I didn't want to feel the pressure of always having to give food or whatever. It was like, okay, what's a simple solution? Water bottles. I could just carry 20 water bottles in my car or whatever at all times and that's easy I can give it to somebody you know that's something right. and so right. similar here when it comes to this like just being attentive to that being attentive to the, our own our own struggles with with our own helplessness but you know we've been talking about this a lot but in all sincerity like what do you see parishes do well when it comes to helping people with mental illness and what do you see as the next step in terms of what parishes can do better um, to attend to people who struggle with a mental illness well, uh, I and a few other people formed this lay association of Catholic faithful called the Association of Catholic Mental Health Ministers. And we formed that, uh, to, one, to support each other and to build up this ministry within the church, because uh, it can be a difficult ministry. But where, the, where parishes are doing mental health ministry well is that they, they are open about it. They're providing spiritual support group meetings, for people, spiritual support, not clinical support, spiritual support where people who live with these mental illnesses can come in and talk to each other openly about where God is in the midst of these illnesses and in their struggles. They can talk about their self-harming history and suicide ideation and people aren't gonna cringe and walk away. They will stay there and engage and discuss and, and also talk about their successes and when things are going well. Spiritual support group for the parents uh, usually it's parents, the caregivers of someone that has a mental illness, uh, because I know and from my 
experience with Katie, it says that you feel all alone when you find out your child has attempted suicide or been admitted to a psychiatric hospital. You know, we call it, it's not the castle, it's not a casserole illness, is uh, mental illness is not. You know, if your child has a broken leg, the neighbors send the casserole over to help you out. That's if right. your child is in a psychiatric ward, been admitted to us, it's like, oh boy, I don't, we don't even want to talk to them. We'll just leave them alone. Uh, so oftentimes, parents in particular, because uh, these illnesses come on in the teen years and early 20s, uh, are, are just in shock. They, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn for support. They're grieving, not the death, but they're grieving their hopes and for what their child would be when they're confronted with these serious illnesses. So a, a parish that provides a place for, for parents in particular to talk about this and support each other, that's what a, peri, a good parish does. Uh, the other examples are in the petitions, the intercessory prayers. We pray for everything, which is great, uh, but also pray specifically for people that uh, have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, suicidal ideation. During uh, uh, Suicide Awareness Month in September, pray for those who have died by suicide. Uh, you can do that. We also have, uh, and also clergy, deacons and priests and bishops can work in into homilies. Uh, we have a suicide remembrance mass in some places uh, where the, where folks uh, can come in once a year and have a special mass for people that have died by suicide. Uh, we can, we have uh, educational programs for the broader parish community uh, so that the stigma can break down in the community uh, because uh, uh, this education in a Catholic, in a parish setting is important, is to be able to get, become educated and realize that it's, you're a good Catholic if you, if you, if you understand and talk about mental illness, that doesn't make you a bad Catholic to be talking about these things openly within a parish setting. So we can do things like that, work it into the youth group meetings. Uh, in particular, work it into uh, RCIA, talk about the church teaching in these matters. So you can weave it into the fabric of the life of the church. I can go on and on. There's lots <laughs> of things that, uh, that parishes can do to specifically address mental illness, but also just weave it into the life of the parish so that it's uh, our hope. So that it's a common ministry. Our hope one day is, is that uh, mental health ministry will be as common a ministry in a parish as grief support or CCD. Just it's one of these things that every parish just naturally truly offers because it's a it's a widespread source of suffering that all of us deal with you know that's uh, you know the statistics mario i mean one in five of us at any one time are dealing with some sort of mental diagnosable mental health disorder and over the course of a lifetime half of us will be so if we're not dealing with it ourselves we're close to someone that is and uh, parish leaders uh, should be willing and open to talk about their illnesses. I, of course, talk about Katie's uh, death by suicide, but I deal with a certain amount of depression when it's appropriate, like something like this. I'll talk about that. Yeah, I mean, clergy are not immune to these things either. <laughs> um, so for cler clergy should also be willing to be able to normalize the conversation and say, yeah, of course, it's not us sitting up here in the altar. You know, we're sort of immune to this and because we're holier than you people that have to deal with it. It's it's like everybody has to deal with this. So in a so in a in a parish that has a good mental health ministry, it's kind of open and accepted, and we we all support each other uh, as we grapple with these problems. Amen. Thank you for sharing all that. That was really beautiful. You know, I think the first time I heard a, a bishop talk openly about mental health issues uh, was Bishop. And I think he's on your board, Kevin Van Vaughn. Am I saying it right? How do you pronounce it? Kevin Van from uh, Van, Orange from, County. From Orange, yeah. yeah. He wrote the foreword to our book. Yeah, right. that's right. He wrote the foreword to your book. It, it was he. I don't even know. Maybe twelve years ago or something. Did this kind of mental health in the church series with um, Rick Warren at Saddleback. I think yes. it was following Rick Warren's son's death. The right. two of them kind of partnered together. Rick Warren as the obviously the, the the mega church pastor there in Saddleback, and then the the Catholic bishop of of Orange. They did these kind of this day this conference that you know had videos and they put it up online. But just their conversation, the two of them being open and talking, um, and, and just saying that okay, the church has to be forward thinking when it comes to this. Um, we have to be able to to really be on the forefront of responding. Um, because even you know even now in our secular age, the vast majority of people still go to the church when they have an issue. Um, it's like I think they said something. This was a few years ago that I read the statistic. It was something like when people have a problem, sixty-one percent of them still go to a church. You know, to 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 meet with a pastor or a priest or a, or a clergyman. You know, to be able to talk about about the, the issue that they're dealing with. So the church in many ways is the first line of defense when it comes to these things. And so being able to triage appropriately and saying, okay, here's the services that we have. This is what we can offer from a pastoral, spiritual perspective.
perspective, being able to know what that is at your particular parish, detail all that out. But then here's also the list of resources that we have for therapeutic resources, counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, inpatient services, things that we trust, you know, that that we've worked with, being able to have that list ready to go as well. This was one of my assignments when I taught pastoral counseling to my seminarians. I said, it was like the second assignment of the semester or something like that. I was like, all right, go into your diocese and your assignment is find 10 names of therapists that you trust. (laughs) And so I said, so when you're, when you, when you are are ordained in a couple of years and out back in your home diocese, you already have that list ready to go and no one can tell you, and you can't blame anybody else for not having it. Like, so, so I'm making it an assignment, like get it done, have it ready to go so that when you're ordained, you, you can do that. And so again, just getting over I shouldn't be so. I shouldn't say that's so 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 challenging. Let me say. Let me say a little bit more. Um, you know, recognizing that we all feel helpless in the midst of this, recognizing right. that we all feel overwhelmed by by the challenges that are before us when it comes to mental health, but recognizing that we still have a small role in this. And so, whatever the small role is that your particular parish or any particular parish could could do, like claim it, own it, and and, and do it. The other thing I'll quickly add, too, since you mentioned seminarians, that those of us in clergy have to stop self-stigmatizing ourselves. What do you mean? By not acknowledging our mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, far too many members of the clergy, and I'll just briefly say this, we'll have a healthier clergy once the members of the clergy accept their anxiety, their depression, and get the treatment they need. You know, uh, sadly, every year, a couple priests die by suicide. That happens. We had one in Baton Rouge here yes. this fall. Yes, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful, yeah. I, yes, I know. I've heard yeah. of uh, that. A Father, Danny, Father Danny Roussel, yeah, bless him. Yes, it happens. And, um, and, and so, and again, you can't prevent every suicide, even every suicide by a priest can't be prevented. But I think it would help clergy a lot to, uh, be readily accept uh, the mental health treatment and mental health care, and uh, and be uh, be willing and able to talk about it when at appropriate times. Uh, I think that it that it make for a healthier clergy too. It helps for a healthier society in general because you know you you know these statistics about half the people with a mental health disorder don't get treatment uh, because of the self stigmatization. Well, clergy, I'm sure in that fifty percent that aren't getting treated, uh, and it would be better if if the clergy was more like ninety percent of them are getting treated, and then it'd be, we'd have a healthier clergy if that was the case. So I just wanted to quickly add that, that uh, it's, it's something that uh, not just the people in the pews need to deal with, but I would also say that the clergy in the church need to be willing and able to accept their um, uh, their, their need for mental health care too. It's not doesn't make you a bad, a bad priest if you're going to see a therapist or a counselor. That is 100% right. Yes, thank you. Right. Because the truth is that Unfortunately, sometimes the, the clergy, the culture, I shouldn't say anybody specific, but the culture of the clergy kind of, uh, it doesn't allow for that type of humility at times. Like it, it does right. exist at times where it is. Or they'll think, you know, in, in fairness to them, they'll think that their parishioners or their people will think less of them. Right. Because, right. you know, back in the day you'd hear, oh, well, Father had to go away to take a vacation. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. he was really gone. Yeah, and the church, the church's credit, they do have some psychiatric hospitals for clergy. Sure, sure. But it was never talked about when they went to that. It was just mm-hmm. kind of like Father went away to whatever, and they kind of left it vague mm-hmm. as to why Father went away. I think it's fine if Father goes away, gets some psychiatric care, and comes back and talks about what happened and you know how he's healthier now yep. that'd be a great service to the, to his parish community and i can speak firsthand to that. that we had a priest when i was in tallahassee at florida state university one of the parish priests that was there struggled with alcoholism and he went sure. away and, and i don't know where he went i don't know if it was guest house or somewhere but he went away for a couple months and came back and he to his testament you know it was over the summer and he just had an open forum at, at the at the rectory, and he said, "Any of the students, anybody in the parish wants to come, I'm 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 at a point where I'm ready to talk about it." Wonderful. So then, Good he, for him. so then he did. He just opened up and shared beautifully about his journey with alcoholism. You know, when he started drinking, and then how he tried to get help at different times, but then finally going away and, and getting the assistance that he needed. And how he, and that was, and none of us thought that he was less of a priest because of it. Rather, the opposite. We were all amazed by his courage and his and his willingness to invite us, his parishioners, into this journey with him. And so, um, that stuck with me. You know, all these years later, I've just been so grateful for him. You know, to being able sure. to do that, because there is a way of being able to open up and share and talk. And I think you're right. If if we can reduce the stigma, change the language, um, you know. 
change the pastoral approaches to all of this, then maybe we can get the, the openness that's needed to be a better church responding to these issues, but then also at a, at a higher level, you know, as you've talked about changing funding and getting research backing the stuff up so that we can be a little bit sharper and a little bit better with diagnostic tools. Um, that isn't just subjective, you know, because right now that's where all exists is, is self-reports of that nature, but, right. uh, but getting something that is, that is, that is much more um, substantial. And so let us pray for that. And so, is there anything else you want to share about, you know, the Catholic my, Health my big dream Ministers? Is What's your big dream here? Where are you going? What's... My big dream is that someday the Catholic Church is known as the church to come to when you're struggling with mental health challenges. That we, that are, that we are the church that can do this, that we understand it, we have the pastoral care for it, and we have the, the, the compassion of, of Christ present in our ministry to people that live with these challenges because you know the old pogo saying uh, they is us uh so so many of us you know it's not like those people over there we all struggle with these things and if the church can one day be known as the church the preeminent church in dealing with mental health issues that'd be wonderful amen amen well the church could be because the church is in her teaching she is she obviously preaches beautifully mercy um excuse me, you know, understanding of, of our limitations, but at the same time, the church is not afraid of science and allowing science to do right. its job as well, especially when it right. comes to these issues. And so being able to kind of hold the tension of both, not over-spiritualizing things, not exactly. saying that it is just, oh, if they would have just said this one deliverance prayer or this one kind of, right. you know, whatever, then it would have changed something. It's not the way it works. You know, it's not. And so the church beautifully sits in kind of this balance of, of understanding reality, um, taking life as it is, but at the same time, marching towards, you know, hope and, and the fullness of salvation that God desires for all of us. So I would champion that vision, you know, if, if, if it comes to that. And I'm encouraged that Pope Francis over the last year or so in particular has been talking about this more. You know, he spoke about it on World Mental Health Day in October. His Angelus was a was a brief but very insightful prayer to, uh, for people that live with mental health disorders and, and the young who die by suicide. You don't hear the Pope use that word too often, but it was good to hear the Pope explicitly say we're praying for people that have died by suicide. And then his prayer intention for November was people who suffer from depression. And uh, it's a beautiful associated uh, video that goes with that prayer intention and other resources on, on, the, on the Vatican website. So it's good that the, um, the Holy Father is talking about it. And, you know, speaking of church leaders, he talked about his need for psychoanalytical care in the yep. 70s. He, he talks about his, his need for it from time. So, so it's good to see that the higher levels of the church at the papal level, uh, more openness and willing to discuss this and see this as a, as a ministry for the church. Amen. Okay, so if people are looking for more resources and want to know more about the work that you're doing, where, where would be a good place to start? The primary place is, is our webpage, Catholic MHM, Mental Health Ministers, catholicmhm.org. Or, you know, look me up in Scranton. I'm, you know, you can find me here in Scranton. Sounds great. Well, I'll have a link to the, the Catholic Mental Health Ministers uh, website, you know, on the show notes. And Deacon Ed, final question to ask all my first-time guests, uh, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> what gives me hope is, you know, you're, you're talking to a deacon. So my hope in Jesus Christ and, and in particular the Holy Spirit. For me, I, I sense and see the Holy Spirit moving in our world and, and in you and in me and in the people around me. And that's that's what gives me hope is knowing that the Holy Spirit's with us will never leave us. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, that what we're experiencing now in this in life is not the end and particularly i've thought about this a lot with katie's death you know katie hasn't disappeared it's not like she doesn't exist anymore so our hope is an eternal life too uh, that we're, we will always be loved by christ amen that is beautiful thank you deacon ed for sharing that and thank you for joining me on the podcast today god bless you thank you thank you for having me mario god bless you too All right. Well, that does it for today's episode. I pray that it's been a blessing to you. Thanks for hanging in there. I know it got heavy at times when we talk about suicide. It's not a fun topic to discuss. But again, if, if you know somebody um, 
who has died by suicide, then I pray that this show has been a blessing and a comfort to you. And if you know somebody who recently had a family member or a friend die by suicide or have severe mental health issues, then please share this episode with them as a way and a source of comfort so that they can understand what the church teaches and how the church is ready to respond to their particular needs. So God bless everybody and be good. 